The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. As you read the Minor Prophets, they can be confusing at times, not just because some of their names sound the same, uh, and I also don't mean just the, the language that they use or, or the fact that they, they speak in this, uh, in this sort of Old Testament poetry, you know, I'm not even talking about trying to figure out the historical context and what's going on. No, I, I mean when you do know what's going on, <laughs> when, when it does make sense, sometimes it's still confusing. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's what Harmony just read from Zephaniah chapter 1. And that can be very confusing. Why would God do that? How could God do that? And we looked at one answer last week in the book of Habakkuk, which focused on the sovereignty of God. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told, God said to Habakkuk, who asked the questions that we sometimes ask when we get confused. Right? And he also told him, the righteous shall live by faith. And so resting in God's sovereign plan for everything, trusting him by faith, that's one way that we make sense out of it all. But today... Zephaniah gives us another angle, an angle that deals with sin and and judgment and repentance and salvation, sort of the bread and butter topics of of the Bible when you think about it. I mean, these are the big ones, aren't they? Sin and judgment, turning to God in repentance, being saved, being delivered from his wrath and judgment and living then a restored life with him. That's what Zephaniah is about. Now, in order to make sense of Zephaniah and, and apply it to us today, we, we need to understand something about the Old Testament prophets in general and, and Zephaniah's focus on the day of the Lord in particular. So the, the Old Testament prophets, the way that they saw time was unique. Okay, Here's what I mean by that. When, when the Old Testament prophets received a word or, or a prophecy from God and then spoke it to the people, time was, it, it sometimes gets confusing. Sometimes they're speaking of near-term events in the Old Testament minor prophets, like the impending attack of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Sometimes they were speaking of events that would take place when Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, when he would come. And sometimes they point all the way forward to the return of Christ at the end of the age. And this is particularly true when we read in the Old Testament prophets like Zephaniah about the day of the Lord. Uh, think about, if it helps, think about a mountain range. Okay, um, when you're approaching Denver from Nebraska, you can see the mountains, right? Um, but you can't always tell how far they go. They're there, but, but some are closer than others, and some are still further off. In fact, when you get to driving in them, you, you realize that this mountain range goes further than you even imagined. Uh, I remember the first time I thought I was going to drive through the Rocky Mountains on vacation with my family. We were going to drive from here to Denver and then across the state of Colorado to Montrose and then down to Durango and hit Mesa Verde. And I kind of thought stupidly um, that, you know, this would just take, once we get to Denver, you know, it only takes about this long to get across Nebraska. And so it, once you get to Denver, we're probably only, what, I don't know, three, four hours away from Montrose. Boy, was I wrong. You know, I, I thought, you know, what I can see in the mountains, we'll get over those and we'll get through those. You never really get through the mountains when you're driving in Colorado. You're always in the mountains in Colorado, right? And so what that means is, number one, um, it, it took, our vacation took way more hours of driving than I originally expected. Um, and two, this is a pretty good illustration for the day of the Lord. 
the, the day of the Lord is like that. We, we can see it from the foothills. Um, in one sense, it's near. That there was a fulfillment of the day of the Lord in the near-term future for Zephaniah. And in another sense, it was further off. There was a further fulfillment at the time of Christ. And yet, in another sense, we still await the full and final fulfillment when Christ returns. And having that mountain range view, it's, it's really important to, to both making sense of the book of Zephaniah as well as applying it to us today. Now, the first thing that we learn in Zephaniah is that God will judge sin. God will judge sin. There's a lot of judgment action going on in Zephaniah. You say, well, I don't like to be judged. Well, the, the Bible will judge it from time to time. God will judge sin. Zephaniah was a prophet, we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, in the days of King Josiah. And, and Josiah, if you go back and read about him in 2 Kings 22 and 23, he was a good king in Judah. In fact, he, he led a time of reform amongst God's people, but that wasn't until a little bit later in his reign, partially because King Josiah took over the throne when he was eight. Okay, we got a crop of eight-year-olds in our church. Uh, my daughter Vivian is one of them. Um, Everett is one of them. Jonas is one of them. Uh, I know Callan is one of them. There's several eight-year-olds. If you picture your favorite eight-year-old in the church, picture them being king of a nation. Okay, that's a little bit of an intimidating prospect, isn't it? Um, well, 18 years into his reign, at the wise old age of 26, that's when Josiah began his reforms. But, but Zephaniah, by best estimates... He ministered early in young King Josiah's reign before the reforms took place. It was a time of sin and covenant unfaithfulness in Judah. And Zephaniah, part of what he's doing here, a big part actually, is pronouncing God's judgment upon sin. And not just sin in the abstract. There's some very particular areas of sin that he calls out. The first is idolatry. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now, Baal is a, a common name for the, for the Canaanite storm god, okay? And, and worship of Baal is continually creeping up in the lives of God's Old Testament people. And the worship of Baal was, was idol worship. It was worshiping something or someone else other than God, looking to Baal instead of Yahweh for anything that they were to look to Yahweh for. Now, this isn't the first time that we've hit the, the theme of idolatry in the Minor Prophets, but I want you to see something very important here with, with respect to idol worship in Zephaniah. Look, look at the rest of verse 4 and, and then verse 5. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. And it's here that we see the, the sin of syncretism. Um, they're worshiping the host of heavens, right? They bow down and they swear to Yahweh, and yet they also swear by Milcom. Milcom was the god of the Ammonites, do you see what God's people are doing here? They're not exclusive in their worship. They're, they dabble with God, but they dabble with other gods too. Now, that might feel a little bit hard to, us, um, to apply to our lives until we put a little bit of definition around what we mean when we talk about little g gods or idols. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a 20th century English preacher. He defines idolatry as anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. That's an idol. In Zephaniah's day, it was more literal and more tangible, but all, milcom. In our day, it's less tangible, but no less real. I mean, it can be things like Husker football. It can be things like youth sports or Netflix or a boyfriend or sex. It, you know, an idol can, we can turn money into an, an idol or political alignment, um, all of which are typically what we would call surface idols. They're things that we kind of idolize at the, at the surface, and typically there's something much deeper underneath those, a deeper idol like comfort or power or control or approval. And when we think about it like that, anything can be an idol and everything has become an idol. To put Zephaniah's judgment of this sin in our terms, this sin of syncretism, God's people, they go to church, you know, they, they sing in the sanctuary, they pray, but they, they don't look to Jesus for everything. Do they love Jesus? I mean, I, I, kind of. You know, they, I mean, they go to church, but they're also looking around and trusting in other things too. They're, they're mixing in other gods. They're, they're mixing in idols. They're trusting in things that the secular world around them has been trusting in or the religious world around them has been trusting in, other religions. They're not exclusive with them. They're, you know, to put it more crassly, they're, they're seeing other people sleeping around on the side to use the spiritual adultery imagery. They're worshiping approval or stuff or control or self right alongside Jesus. They dabble with God, but they dabble with other gods too. There's other things in their life that occupy the place that should be occupied by God alone. Now, if we don't think that describes us, (laughs) we're not being spiritually honest with ourselves, are we? Our hearts are idol factories, Calvin said. We're we're always prone towards idolatry. And if we don't know our own hearts enough to admit that, we're not even yet aware of the problem. Zephaniah takes us further in verse 6. He also addresses those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Here we have backsliders. It's not just idolatry, though that would be significant enough to warrant God's judgment. No, in their idolatry, they had become backsliders. They're becoming apostate, turning back from following God. They're not seeking him anymore. They're not inquiring of him anymore, to put it in today's terms. Maybe they've stopped attending church. Maybe they've neglecting to, to meet together, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 10. Perhaps they've stopped reading their Bible, stopped praying, listening to the news has replaced listening to God and his word, stopped engaging with other brothers and sisters in Christ, stopped exhorting one another daily as we're commanded to. Their heart is growing hard, they're growing distant from God, they're backsliding, losing track of God. And Zephaniah here, he's actually pronouncing judgment upon that. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, these are supposed to be God's people. 
And they're backsliding away from God now, sliding into sin and away from God. And Zephaniah says, God's judgment will come upon that. And there's more. Look at verse 12. It says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And so complacency and apathy have set in. The, the sense here is a, is a spiritual lethargy. A, 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 it's like who cares approach to, 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 to their relationship with God. Or worse, they've convinced themselves that God doesn't really care either. He won't do good or ill. He won't bless or curse. He, he doesn't really do anything. And so why does any of it really matter? They've convinced themselves, I hope you see, that God is indifferent to their indifference of God. That God is indifferent to their sin. This is an extremely dangerous place to be. When you grow indifferent to sin in your life, when you convince yourself that God is indifferent to sin in your life, when, when your conscience has become numb to sin because of the frequency and the presence of sin, and you no longer experience conviction of sin, you, my friend, are in a very dangerous place. And this was true in Zephaniah's day. It's true in ours. It may very well be true of you in your life this morning. It's sin. And Zephaniah is telling us here, God will judge sin. And you might be thinking at this point, well, wait a second, you know, what about grace? I mean, <laughs> that's all in the past for me, right? I trusted in Jesus. Isn't that all in the past now? Doesn't grace just abound all the more now? Well, in a way, yes, but listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He addresses the exact same thing. What shall we say then? After talking about the gospel and the good news and that we're forgiven and in Christ, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue to sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is why Jesus says in the New Testament, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is why James says in the New Testament that faith without works is dead. There are imperatives all over the New Testament, commands to obey God, and you're not free to ignore them. There will be those, Jesus says, on the last day who cry, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. God will judge sin. And I know that's uncomfortable to hear, but in one way, there's nothing more loving for me to tell you this morning. You know, when our kids were younger, most of them are big enough now to not run out in the street, but it, when my kids were younger, if they were run out into the street, right, and let's just say that here comes a car just blazing 45 miles an hour down Harwood Street. If I didn't shout out to them, watch out for the car, I wouldn't be a very loving father, would I? 
Church, God our Father, through Zephaniah, he hollers out to you today, watch out for the car. Watch out for sin in your life. And if you're still thinking, you know, I'll get around to that. I'll take care of that sometime. Maybe in a few years after I'm done having fun. I remember thinking that exact thing when I was in college. Not now, maybe later, I'll think about it. (laughs) Or maybe you're thinking, my sin really isn't that bad. I mean, there's way worse sinners in the world than me. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you think this is all a bunch of bull. You should, at the very least, listen to the words we find at the beginning of chapter 3, where we read, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Zephaniah has a name for the sinful here. It's rebellious. And because they are sinful and rebellious, he describes them as defiled and oppressing city. Look, God's people, they're supposed to be a blessing, and instead, they're oppressing. And the woe oracle is against Jerusalem as a people, but it is just as applicable to the individuals making up that people. And it gives us a very clear picture of what unrepentance looks like. I mean, repentance means turning from sin, right? It involves change. Not just confession, not just acknowledging sin. It actually means change. Unrepentance, then, looks like this. (laughs) Blowing it off. She listens to no voice. She, She hears the words of the prophet. She hears the words of a preacher or a parent or a friend and isn't interested. She accepts no correction. No one can tell her what to do or not do. She's her own standard. Which means she does not trust in the Lord. She trusts in herself. And she does not draw near to God. It's sin. It's unrepentant sin. And Zephaniah is telling us God will judge sin. He will. If you keep reading in in chapter 3, implicated in all of this are the the leaders, the the civic leaders, the other prophets. Verse 4, the the priests. And this is supposed to be his holy city. This is supposed to be his holy people. Verse 5, the the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. They just keep living this way and living this way and living this way. No shame, no conviction, no repentance. And so God says in verse 6, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. He says, look what I've, look what I've done. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely because of this you'll fear me. You accept correction. Been trying to get your attention, that then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. 
For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God is saying, I've been patient, but his patience is running out. He's slow to anger, yes, but he is not indifferent to sin. He is not free from from holy anger, righteous anger against sin. God will judge sin. I want you to hear the the words from chapter 1 describing the day of the Lord this morning, but before we read that, I want to remind you of the mountain metaphor. So think in terms of the near-term fulfillment of of God's judgment, which would come upon God's Old Testament people here when the Babylonians would invade, attack, and carry them off into exile in 586 B.C. There's a near-term fulfillment. But I also want you to hear this for our day and age, as well as a future day and age when Christ returns. Final judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Why is God doing this? Well, it's because of sin. It's very clear there in verse 17. It doesn't get any more clear than this. He is bringing about his wrath, bringing about destruction and distress, judgment, because they have sinned against the Lord. And this is so important to understand. You know, there are people in the world who wrongly assume that man is essentially good. And they therefore ask, why would a good and loving God bring about judgment upon his people or for, on anyone for that matter? But the biblical view is to see that we are all sinful. None of us escapes this. God judges the nations in Zephaniah. He also judges his own. Jerusalem, Judah. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3. Be it through outright rejecting of the God of the Bible or through the things that we idolize in our life, dividing our worship, dividing our devotion, neglecting God, turning away from God, failing to seek him, listen to him, backsliding, and so on. That is all sin. And God judges sin because he is holy and just. 
And so the question that we should be asking instead isn't, you know, why would a good and loving God bring about judgment upon his people or anyone for that matter? The question that we should be asking is, why would a holy and just God show mercy and grace upon anyone? See, only when you understand this will you ever be able to make sense out of the Old Testament or the Bible really at all. If you view man as essentially good, you will read the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, you'll read of his wrath and his judgment, and you will say, what is God doing? But if you view man and yourself more specifically as sinful, you will read the Old Testament, you'll read the rest of the Bible, you'll see his mercy and his grace, and you will say, what is God doing? It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in world and eternity to understand God judged sin. He did it in the day of the minor prophets. He used the Babylonians for it. God judges sin. That should get your attention today. And God will judge sin. There will come a day when Jesus Christ will return. The final judgment. The New Testament book of Acts, when Paul preached at Mars Hill in Acts 17, he ends his sermon with saying, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. God judged sin, God judges sin, God will judge sin, and the assurance that we have of that lies in the truth that Jesus has conquered the grave and is alive. And therefore, we must heed the warnings of judgment and repent. You know, something to understand is that as you read the Bible, sure there's judgment, but God, he never springs it out of nowhere. You know, it's, judgment in the Bible isn't like a pop quiz in math. It's not a pop quiz in math class that you weren't prepared for. Um, in the days of the minor prophets, decades and centuries even have passed in the life of God's people with large seasons of unfaithfulness. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them and turn them back. Sometimes they did. Oftentimes they didn't. Sometimes they did for a little while, and then they returned to their sinful ways, and he'd send another prophet in his patience again, calling them back again. Return to me. That's a consistent refrain of our, love, our loving God and Father through the minor prophets. Return to me. Even here in Zephaniah, we read of this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. He's talking again to Judah. Gather together before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Before, before, before. Listen, Zephaniah uses a lot of repetition in his, in his prophecy to drive home his points. He's already repeated the day of the Lord, the day, the day, the day. He uses it something like 17 times in the first chapter to drive home the point that God will judge sin. Here, though, there's a different point that he drives home, that it's not too late. 
It's not too late to heed the warnings of judgment and repent. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, verse 3, seek the Lord. Seek him. Seek him, all you humble of the land. Humble yourself. Turn from turning away. Turn from not seeking him. Humble yourself and seek him. Do his just commandments. Turn from breaking his commandments and keep them instead. Seek righteousness. Seek all that is right and holy. Pursue it. Pursue God. Pursue fidelity in your worship and devotion of him. Pursue righteousness with those around you. Living out justice, living out the commands of God, being a blessing to others. Do it humbly. Seek humility. Put away pride. Put away arrogance. And perhaps, perhaps, he says, you may be hidden. Zephaniah's name literally means Yahweh has hidden. (laughs) Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. When judgment comes, hidden, protected, spared from the judgment. As you read on, the perhaps there becomes more clear as we understand that when Zephaniah says in chapter 1 that God is going to destroy the whole earth and all its inhabitants, that he's, he's actually speaking in hyperbole. We know that because there will be a remnant of the house of Judah, verse 7 says. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Again in verse 9, we read of the remnant. Those who have heard the warning of judgment, heeded the warnings of judgment, and repent. We read more about this in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, where it says, On that day you shall not be put to shame. Because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. You're not going to be put to shame because of that. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. God removes from his people the proudly exultant ones. The ones who will not humble themselves and seek him. To use the language from chapter 2. Those who won't seek righteousness, but rather persist in their sin. Those who listen to no voice, accept no correction, who won't trust God or draw near to him. Those who won't turn back, won't return to him. They're removed. This isn't a message of universalism. They shall no longer be haughty and prideful on my holy mountain. Verse 12 But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they will graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. These are those who hear and heed the warnings of judgment and repent. 
They, they are humble and lowly. They have acknowledged their sin, acknowledged their need, and sought refuge in the name of the Lord. They have hidden themselves in God, returned to him. And at this point, guys, we are so close to the end of the book. And the last seven verses in Zephaniah, uh, you know it if you've read it, okay? The last seven verses are epic in doxological goodness. They are incredible, right? I mean, some of the best stuff that the Bible has to offer, it's, it's right here. But before we get to the end of chapter 3, and the final point, we, we have to make sure that we understand all that comes before it. I mean, you're, you're going to love point three. You're going to love it. Um, but we only get to point three after first going thoroughly through points one and two. The end of Zephaniah and all the doxological goodness that's there, it's only true of you if you truly understand that God will judge sin. And only if you've heeded the warnings of judgment and repent, hiding yourself in him. And so this is an opportunity this morning to examine yourselves. This is an opportunity to do real heart work before God. This is important and it's so easily lost, I think, in churches today. We're not just here for a spiritual pep talk. We're not just here for spiritual life hacks. We're not after pragmatic best practices and how to live your best life now. You can get all that on TikTok. You don't need any more tips and tricks for your life. You need God's word in fullness and power. You need to hear about God's holiness. You need to hear about his righteousness and therefore his holy and righteous judgment of sin. Including your own. I know you're here so you think you're good. You're church, you know. It's like, well, I'm here. But look, Zephaniah was talking to God's people too. And so it's time to be honest before God. Have you surrendered your life to him? Or are you putting that off? Or are you putting up a facade? If you've got questions, are, are you asking them? I mean, are, are you moving with some sense of, of urgency to get answers to those questions? Because he's coming back. I pray for it every day. I'm ready for it. Are you? I, often throughout my day, I'll just, a little, little tiny prayer, come Lord Jesus, just so you know, I'm praying for it, often. When he does, the opportunity to heed the warnings and repent will have expired. Have you surrendered your life to him? Hidden yourself in him. For most of you, I know you have, you know? And so I want to ask you, are there any areas of, of idolatry sort of creeping into your life. That's a big part of what was happening in Zephaniah's day. Is there anything that's occupying the place that should be occupied by God alone? Any unconfessed sin? Any secret sin? Are there any other functional gods that you've set up alongside the one true God in your life? And if that feels too, too vague, like, I don't know what you mean yet, answer some of these questions. Where do you find refuge? Is it in him? Where do you find safety or ultimate comfort? Where do you find pleasure, security, 
peace. What is it in your life, if it was taken away, what would cause you to really consider giving up on God? Or what is it in your life that you've been asking God for for a long time now, and if he doesn't come through on it, you're just, you're not really sure you're going to continue on with this Christianity business. Is there any backsliding in your life? Have you stopped seeking him? Stopped listening to him? Have you grown cold on church and being engaged in the lives of your brothers and sisters? Has 2020 got you down, you know? Is the enemy, is he using the junk from 2020 to drive a, relation, to drive a wedge in your relationship with the Lord and your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you stopped reading the scriptures? Stop praying. Have you given up on quiet time with the Lord? That sounds like something from the 90s. We don't do that anymore. Have you given up on quiet time with the Lord? Have spiritual disciplines given way to spiritual distances? Is your heart growing hard? Are you growing distant from God, losing track of God? Has complacency set in? Do you find yourself spiritually apathetic? A, 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 lethargy, a lethargy that makes you kind of shrug your shoulders and say, what does it even matter? Who cares? Have you grown indifferent to God? Indifferent to his will? Indifferent to his commandments, his purpose, his glory? Has your conscience become numb to sin due to the frequency and presence of sin and you no longer even care about it. God says to you today, return to me. Return to me. Call upon the name of the Lord. Seek him. Humble yourself before him. Cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hide yourself in him. You're not too far gone. I mean, read Zephaniah, right? God's people were a flaming hot mess, you know? And, and when they heeded the warnings of judgment and repented, he spared them. The remnant, that is. His judgment was matched with his mercy. And listen, as Christians, right, on, on this side of the cross, we know that the most amazing display of God's judgment occurred when he poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. Another day of the Lord, where judgment came in full force and landed upon our Savior. So that now when you trust in Jesus, the wrath that you deserve for all of your sin, past, present, and future, he took it all on for you. And what that means is, you don't have to sit in here this morning with your, head net, with your head down until you feel really, 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 really guilty for your sin. <laughs> no, we're, while we were still sinners, we're told, Christ died for us. In the midst of it all, while you were still sinning, he died in your place. <laughs> 
And at the cross, we don't just see judgment averted and mercy served. Mercy is defined as us not getting what it is that we deserve, judgment and wrath due for our sin. We don't just see judgment and and mercy meet. We also see and receive his grace too, his unmerited, glorious favor. The Apostle John says that it's from Christ's fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. In the sense there is upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. We can't even exasperate his grace. My friends, you are sinful. Listen, we all are. Judgment will come for our sins. It will either come upon us on the final day when Christ returns or for those who have turned to Christ, trusted in Christ, been united to Christ, hidden in Christ. Judgment came upon him in our place on the cross. At the cross, God's judgment and his mercy meet. And on this side of the cross, there is grace upon grace upon grace even for those of us who belong to him and have sinned some more. (laughs) We return to him again and again. This is the gospel. It's good news. Repent and believe it. Repent and believe it. Because when we do, the most beautiful vision of deliverance and restoration and hope is ours. And that's what the last seven verses of Zephaniah are all about. I mean, the, the last part of Zephaniah, it essentially preaches itself, okay? Let's look at it. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. And exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one. Who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And then it switches to the first personal. The voice of God, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your repressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Wow. I mean, here we are back at the foothills. Standing before the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains of God's grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. There is near-term fulfillment here, right? As God delivered the faithful, the the repentant, the the righteous, when the Babylonians ransacked them, they were exiled, but they were hidden in him, and they would also later be restored, God's people restored to God's land. 
And then there's fulfillment that comes. The next set of peaks, when Christ came, there is truth here that is true of us in Christ. And there is truth here for us in Christ for when he returns again. If you belong to Jesus, if you have turned to him and hidden yourself in him, the Lord your God is in your midst today. A mighty one who has saved and will save. In Christ, he has rejoiced over you with gladness. He does rejoice over you in gladness right now. And he will continue to rejoice over you with gladness into eternity. In Christ, he, he has quieted you with his love. He does quiet you with his love. And he will continue to quiet you with his love on into eternity. In Christ, he has exalted over you with loud singing. He is currently, right now, exalting over you with loud singing. And he will continue exalting over you with loud singing into eternity. Are you starting to get the picture? Grace upon grace upon grace. He has dealt with your oppressors, is dealing with your oppressors, and one day will finally and fully deal with your oppressors. He has saved you, is saving you, and will save you. He has brought you in and will bring you in. In Christ, you're safe. But only in Christ are you safe. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the gospel as we see it revealed here in Zephaniah. We thank you for your patient warnings and admonitions that you will judge sin. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to just try harder and do better, but instead to hide ourselves in our Savior. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.